This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and let me first start off by asking you all a question. Are you one of those listeners who feels like this podcast has been too negative and too critical lately? Whether it's taking shots at Sam Young or John DeLynn, or even suggesting that maybe the big bad Mormon church is not the real enemy, but the real enemy is you, your own thought patterns. You're the one that's wrong, not the church. Do you feel like we've been crossing the line a little bit too much? You know, it's been a while since I've done a listener survey, but I'm going to do a new survey. I'm going to put it on the website, so please take a few minutes to fill it out and provide some feedback because I'd really like to know what you think. And I'd especially like to know what you think after you hear today's episode where Tom and I sit down with Colton Miller, a licensed psychologist who weighs in himself on this question of negativity and tone and criticism that we've had towards guys like Sam Young and John DeLynn. And let me pull back the curtain for a moment and let you know that as a content creator with thousands of people who listen to this podcast, it's difficult to know sometimes where that line is that could be crossed or not crossed. And I think there's a tendency to want to create specific themed content for specific audiences, but I'm not sure that that's always really the best way to approach things like this podcast, especially if it forces us out of just doing or saying what we genuinely feel, whether we're right or wrong or whatever, being true to ourselves and letting the consequences follow. Uh, It kind of makes me think of a stand-up bit that I heard once from Dave Chappelle on one of his Netflix specials. He told the story about meeting two Hollywood producers who wanted him to pitch them some ideas, but he didn't really have any ideas to pitch. Of course, he didn't want them to know that, so he just made up some story ideas on the spot tailored for each one of them. Now I'm going to play that clip here, and I want to warn you ahead of time, he does make a joke about rape. So if that crosses the line for you, consider this a trigger warning and skip ahead. Fuck the daily bongo is what I said. I went to Oscars and had a wonderful time. I went to that fucking green room, it was filled with so many stars, I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. Hollywood was seducing me all over again. I was sitting back there, I'm smoking, drinking with the stars. And then two Hollywood movie producers came over right to me. Oh my God, Dave Chappelle said the leader one. He was obviously gay. Some guys you can just tell. The other one seemed like a money guy, like maybe he was from Texas or some shit. But the gay one was definitely the leader because he did all the talking. And then he hit me with, so David, um, do you have any movie ideas that you would like to pursue? The truth is, I don't. But if you know the game, you're not supposed to tell motherfuckers you don't have ideas. I was like, yeah, man, I got plenty of ideas. And he called my bluff. Really? Like what? Huh? Oh. Um. Um. And then I just, I just started making up shit that I thought maybe he'd like to see. I said, I have a superhero idea. He goes, really? I go, yeah, he's a, um, he's a gay superhero. He was like, 
Really? What's it called? Huh? Oh, it's called, it's called Same Hero New Boots. It's about a gay sous chef in San Francisco. He gets bit by a radioactive rat on his shift when he's taken out the trash. And is blessed with powers beyond his wildest dreams. Super sonic gay kind of powers. And he starts saving everybody in San Francisco. But at first, he only saves gay people. Later, he saves everybody, and the whole city just falls in love with him. The only problem is, no one remembers him when he saves them. Well, I don't understand. Why wouldn't they remember him? I said, because, dummy, he's gay. He keeps changing his outfit. People come up, thanks for saving, mister. What's your name, anyway? And he's like, ugh, same hero, new boots, and that motherfucker flies away. He was like, I like it a lot. The Texan didn't like that shit at all. He was upset. That's impossible, gay superhero. I said, what? well, I have others. I have a superhero you love because he's stronger than Superman and he fights for truth, justice, and the American way like Superman, but more than Superman. He beats up Mexicans for no reason. <laughs> Texans like, you got my attention. I was like, man, this motherfucker is so strong. He can fly and do all this great shit. Only problem with this guy is he can't even activate his powers unless he touches, unless he touches a woman's vagina. Not a long touch, just a couple of pats. He said, well, what's the problem with that? I said, well, the problem, sir, is that our hero is not, uh, he's not a handsome man. And he's often short on cash. So whenever trouble breaks out, he has to run around the city and convince women to let him pat their vaginas. Please, miss, that building's on fire. Can I pat your vagina quickly? People are dying, but he can't tell them exactly why. Ugh, get away, you're gross. Please, miss. People are dying, just a couple of pets. Ooh, gross, get away. <laughs> so he rapes them. I know, I know. That's the dilemma for the audience. Because he rapes, but he saves a lot of lives. And he saves way more than he rapes, and he only rapes to save. But he does rape. <laughs> I didn't realize it, but the whole green room was looking at us. All the celebrities were disgusted. <sighs> that guy from Texas was like, here's my card, call me on Monday. That worked out. So aside from just loving Dave Chappelle, I guess this is my way of saying that as long as I have ideas of my own, I think I'm going to use those as my own inspiration to create these episodes. Of course, there's always the possibility that I inserted that clip just as a way of setting you up for something that's to come later on. 
But even that would be an example of me following my own internal vision for this episode rather than trying to hit a moving target of what I think thousands of other people want or don't want to hear. Although, of course, I still do want to know what you want to hear, so please fill out the survey. And hopefully, you want to hear the conversation that's coming up between myself and Tom and Colton. But whether you want to hear that or not, here it is. All right, Colton, nice to meet you. So for, um, uh, for, for those who don't know, and maybe I'll mention this in the intro, I don't know if I need to restate it here, but, but uh, Colton, you listened to the open letter to John DeLynn episode that we had, and you sent me an email about it, and then we just started chatting on email a couple of days ago. You're a psychologist in St. George, is that right? Yep, St. George. Ex, Ex-Mormon? It's true, yes, yeah, since I think about 2012, 2013. All right. So, so give, us, give us a little bit of um, your background. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Colton. Sure. Um, so I was raised in uh, Shelley, Idaho, which is just south of Idaho Falls. It is along Mordor, the Mormon corridor there. Uh, probably 80, 90% LDS. Anyway, did all the Mormon stuff growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, served a served uh, went on a mission to Haiti, Port-au-Prince, which is a pretty small, obscure mission. And then uh, returned, did my bachelor's at BYU Idaho. Um, somehow got into a doctorate program down at BYU. And I think um, from the mission and then going into psychology, that's really I really started to think critically about things, which was nice. Um, I think I've always been a cynic in some ways, but now I had the tools to really think intelligently about things. Anyway, I'll just go long story short. Uh, after I graduated with my PhD, I got married and my first job was at BYU Idaho in the counseling center there. There, but before then I had worked at BYU Hawaii, I'd worked for BYU and now I was at BYU Idaho. Um, and I thought it was like ideal because it was back home where I'm from yeah. I was new married. Like this was a great setup. Uh, I had a couple friends that I'd be working with at BYU-Idaho, so I was pretty pleased. Um, two and a half years later, I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, I've had, I had my feel. Uh, it was just, it was too much. Um, and so I literally in one day uh, told my boss that I'm quitting and I won't be returning in the fall. I uh, went home and told my wife, essentially, she could divorce me if she wanted. Uh, <laughs> wow. Put our house up on the market, sold in three days, and then three months later, we moved out to Missouri, ironically. And I spent a couple of years out at University of Missouri, which was excellent. Um, we had a daughter. Uh, she had some health conditions, so we wanted to move, and we moved back closer to family to St. George. Were, were you teaching? Uh, no, mostly. Well, yes and no. My main position is, uh, is clinical work. Okay. So I was seeing a lot of college students. Oh, okay. Uh, all at BYU, all at all the BYUs. It was, I was just always in the counseling centers. I had a few adjunct positions at BYU and then Mizzou. And now I, I have an adjunct position position at Dixie state too. Okay. I do a little teaching mostly for fun. What was, was a faith crisis part of the reason for the, the BYU Idaho exodus, or was this pre becoming an ex Mormon for you? Um, faith crisis, that's an interesting term. I know it is a crisis. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think for me, it was more of, you know, after years of, 
meeting with Mormons on a very personal, private level, um, it's all started to kind of uh, fade away. And the, the mystery, the, the what, what am I trying to say? Uh, when you work for the church, as long as I did, and not that it was terribly long, but you kind of see how the sausage is made. Mm. And it's not a pretty picture. Plus, you see, in my opinion, all the damage that the church culture and doctrine and leaders can do to its members. And you're trying to reconcile that and trying to be helpful. And uh, anyway, it was just it was kind of a painful experience to see a lot of LDS folks go through a lot of unneeded, necessary pain and suffering. And anyway, a lot of things didn't add up. Uh, Haiti played a role for me as well. After the earthquake in 2010, I went back and uh, as part of a hospital task force. And, you know, when you're carrying bodies to the morgue of people you knew and you're, you know, talking to people that you worked with and their children are dead now, it kind of makes you go, wow, you know, if, if, if God exists, it's kind of an asshole if you ask me. Mm. Um, anyway, so there, there was a lot there. But essentially, yeah. It was a faith transition, and yeah. I had a wonderful colleague. I won't name him at BYU Idaho, but his dad is a prominent general authority, or was. He's emeritus now, and you would all recognize the name. He actually left the same time I did, mm. but he he's an intellectual genius. And his anyway, he was kind left, of one left now. BYU Idaho or left the Mormon Church. Uh, both. He left oh, okay. about the same time I did, and he's now an ex Mormon as well. Mm, interesting. So I, I've got a couple of questions, uh, and you, you know, you, you mentioned that you would work with a lot of Mormons, um, and you would see some of the damage that was done as a result of them being in the culture. Can you talk about like what are some of the most common issues that you encountered? Some of the most common struggles that people had, and and how would you help them through it? So, uh, you know. Uh, I'm narrow this down. So I think generally all people struggle with different mental health issues at times. Um, Mormons just kind of have a unique twist on it. And so uh, one common thing amongst Mormons, which is really commonsensical, but perfectionism, um, particularly at BYU, I mean, just students equating their self-worth with their grades. And if everything wasn't perfect, then, you know, a lot of anxiety and despair. Uh, same thing with their behavior, with sinning and everything. So a lot of perfectionism, tons of shame, shame and guilt, but a lot, a lot of shame. And I think that's institutionalized throughout the religion. I mean, that's just part of how they keep people in, essentially. Mm -hmm. So perfectionism, shame. I think a lot of, mis you know, when it comes to actually mental health disorders, like obsessive compulsive disorder, that's one of my areas of specialty. That really got to people, and, you know, really caused a lot of damage. Uh, quick example, they would kind of obsess about something they did, worrying about if they're unworthy, and they'd have to sit and repeatedly confess that over and over to bishops. They didn't feel worthy to go to sacrament meeting anyway. So essentially, um, people who didn't fit the mold, like many of us didn't, yeah. for whatever reason, they felt rejected or shamed or like they were the problem. And that causes a lot of despair when you're not part of that thing that's going to bring you eternal happiness and glory. Yeah. Oh, and then of course, <laughs> of course, the whole masturbation and pornography thing that yeah. is unique to Mormonism. That's unique. It's not in other religions. Oh, maybe in, well, I don't know about other religions. Um, 
it's not unique to a lot of other folks that I work with outside of Mormonism. Like when I went out to Mizzou for two years and worked yeah. at the University of Missouri, yeah. I think I talked about pornography once. When I worked for the BYUs, it was daily. It was constant. Yeah, there does seem to be an unhealthy obsession with pornography in particular within Mormonism. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's and, – and actually BYU ironically came out with a study, was it a few months ago, early, late last year – that essentially said, which a lot of us therapists within the BYUs have been saying for years, which is the belief that it is an addiction and that it is so harmful actually keeps people in it. Um, anyway, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that pornography is a healthy thing. In some circumstances, it might be within marriages, et cetera. But the extent of which the church extrapolates it out to being, you know, a sin next to murder, literally, I mean, I, I had just recently an LDS guy who had attempted suicide because he looked at pornography once in the last six months. And he attempted suicide because of that? Yeah. Yeah. He ended up in the hospital and got released. And yeah, I mean, this, this stuff is not all that uncommon. I mean, the BYUs, particularly BYU, Idaho, they run what they call men's issues groups or sexual concerns groups. And they're fully dedicated to helping individuals who struggle with masturbation or pornography concerns. And do they that, really, do they really help them or are they making it worse? Uh, good question. I think it depends on who's running them and their philosophy towards mm -hmm. it. Okay. I, I think in my experience at BYU, they do much BYU Provo. They do a pretty good job of it. I think at BYU Provo, um, uh, I gotta be careful how I say this. I think they're more thoughtful about it and they're not so rigid in the dogma about it. Mm. When I was at BYU Idaho, I would never refer anybody to those groups and I still wouldn't. Yeah. I just didn't trust the people who were running them. And I think they had an agenda that was antithetical to helping people. Well, BYU-Idaho has the reputation for being really like <laughs> uh, fascist, bat shit maybe? Batshit crazy? That's another way of saying it. Okay. Yeah, that, right. that, that's the technical term from our licensed <laughs> psychologist here. Batshit crazy. I, I have to be careful. I, oh, man, I have, I have my own still probably anger issues about BYU-Idaho. Sure. It's really an, 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 an unhealthy place for a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. Um, they force people to fit the mold and they force their students to lie about fitting the mold. Now, uh, granted, there are students who fit in there just fine. But I mean, it's I mean, whether you're talking about an individual who's LGBTQ or an individual who might be doing something against the honor code, I mean, they they. They truly believe, and a general authority said this in one of the talks up there, that, that BYU Provo is the church's school, but BYU-Idaho is the Lord's university. Yeah, jeez. And, and they take that. <laughs> oh, that little brother. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you call that? What's that? that um, oh, I just faced it when, when somebody has insecurity about um, somebody else. Anyway. That was, that was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I really knocked that one out of the park. Um, so, so I want to, I want to read an email to you guys and I, I think it, I think it can take us in a couple, there's, there's several directions that this could take us. Um, but one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on Colton is that th there has been a sentiment lately expressed by several listeners that infants on thrones has been really negative towards the ex-Mormon community in general and certain voices 
in particular, Sam Young, John DeLynn. Um, and I think that the reason for that negativity stems from my discovery of these cognitive distortions, <laughs> um, you know, which just happened, I don't know, a, a month ago or so. I don't know. When, when was it, Tom? We recorded that episode. It hasn't even been released yet. With oh, the Sam Harris. No, I haven't done the Sam Harris, Jonathan um, Hyde one yet. Okay. I, I can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> it, that, 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 that was an interesting conversation. We'll release it eventually. But in, in, <laughs> in the course of that... on Patreon, right? Yeah. No, yeah, maybe. No, it, uh, it'll be a general release. But um, Jonathan Haidt was talking about his new book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And as part of that, he mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy and these cognitive distortions. And I got really excited about it because I'm like, yeah, I recognize these things. Like I've been right. talking about the us versus them stuff you yeah. know, for a long time. And, and, you know, starting to see certain things, um, you know, like when, when McKenna Denson went to the, you know, the, the ward of Joseph Bishop and did that, like, I was kind of like, really, am I like, how do I feel about that? I'm not quite sure how I feel about this. You know, there's, there's like all this stuff going on that, um, anyway, so, so listeners have said, it seems like you've been kind of negative lately. I wanted to talk about that a little bit in this email. Um, from, from a listener named James. It's a little long. Here's what he says. Um, and he had just listened to the, 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 the recent um, open letter to John DeLynn Smackdown episode that we did. He said, Glenn, some hard episodes to listen to. It's not that I have some naive ideal of an ex-Mormon community that, it was, that is without the baggage and drama and human tendencies that all communities are susceptible to. But it felt like just one more reason to, to lament what is lost when leaving the church. I've been out for over eight years now, and my exit was aided by the John Larsons and the John DeLins and involvement in local and online communities that have come and gone as people wiggle around in new skin and try to find a comfortable path forward. I've exited most of these groups out of a need for distance. I've not listened to a Mormon Stories podcast or been associated with them in any way, shape, or form for several years now, but it still makes me feel sad, and I can't even explain why. John DeLynn infuriated me more times than not. His style was grating even as he delivered information and stories that will forever change my life. Without him, my wife may still be clinging to the church. My marriage may have expired, but because of one episode in particular, our marriage made it. I'm very serious. One episode changed everything for her, and we are thriving. Not to say something else, someone else could not have also had the same impact for us, but he gets the credit for being in the right place at the right time. I don't love John DeLynn, but at the same time, I do love the man. I never thought of him as infallible or even above average, but I wanted him to be something more, whatever that means. Uh, there is so much about my 38 years as a Mormon that I cherish and love. So many memories, traditions, and silly habits that are positive and have made me a better person. Why can't there be a place for that? I hold them internally. I hold them with my wife and to some degree with my daughters and extended family and with a few, very few, close and trusted friends. But the reality is there is no ex-Mormon or post-Mormon community. None. It's a fantasy that I need to stop chasing after. Matt said something that caught my attention a few episodes back about ex-Mormonism being small. I think I get what he was saying now after these two episodes. Despite the immense impact the LDS church has had on my life, there is little place externally to celebrate the good, 
these spaces are more about critical analysis. The afterlife of Mormonism is merely phases of transition until you can, if you can, put it all behind you. And that's a shame. I don't want to put it all behind me. I miss so much of it while loathing so much of it at the same time. I don't even know what I'm trying to say in this email. Honestly, I just feel so much sadness for something that should be absolutely inconsequential to me. Infants is the last thing that I hold on to at this point. All other podcasts have come and gone. The other Facebook groups and communities. I never get on Reddit or poke around in any of the other post-Mormon spaces. No more books, no more blogs. Infants is all that's left. And I'm not going anywhere yet. I value this last connection in a way I can't justify but these last episodes about John DeLynn and all that garbage, I just don't know why you even cared enough to air them. I know you're not the enemy. The church is not the enemy. John is not the enemy. I'm the enemy. <laughs> He's referring to the, uh, an episode I did where I talked about cognitive distortions are the enemy. Not you, James, but, but crud, such a downer, just the same. I wish we had things to celebrate instead. Respectfully, James. Wow, that was really well written, man. And I right? agree, I agree with like everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and thanks for hanging on, keeping us as like the last little string. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty cool, but I yeah. Why why did we care enough to do that? Like I I've I even heard from a friend of mine that reached out to me and and asked, "Why? Why did you guys do that?" And it's a tough question to answer. Do you have What'd you tell him? What'd you tell him, Tom? Because it's important to shine light on things. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good answer. I, 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 I actually follow James on that. Like, I, it's, it's hard. I actually have to strive to find uh, or concoct an interest to follow John DeLynn and Mormon stories and all that stuff. Yeah. Like I, I didn't know that he unfriended me on Facebook and I don't even know when that happened. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I just didn't care. And it just didn't phase me at all. And so, I don't know. Do you have an answer to that question though, Glenn? Why did we do it? Why did, I mean, yeah. Matt kind of uh, sandbagged you guys, but. No, Matt didn't, Matt didn't sandbag us. Um, well, that's what you, you said know. in the episode. So, so how, how far back do we want to go, Tom? Do you want to start with the conversation that you and I had like a week or two before we even recorded it? All right. Yeah, we can. Do well, that. I mean, because because you had been her- hearing rumors about yeah. Delin, and you're like, should we do something on this? And what did I tell you? He said, no, someone else should do it, and then we can smack that down. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Then guess what happened? Right, right, right. Yeah, I, 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 I'm like, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be like an anti Delin thing, and I don't want to just be drudging up rumors. Um, you know, and then we ended up going and doing that. And when you, when you heard it, you're like, what the crap, Glenn, you told me we were going to do this. It's true. And, and then the thing is, is like when I was talking to you about that, I, I just, I've been hearing these things for a long time. And yeah. it seems like, especially recently with the, with the shakeup of OSF that yeah. maybe things will start to come out and maybe we should be the one to pursue some of these people to get, give them a voice and, there you go. You know, we've done things like this in the past, you know, with, with John DeLynn, with Kate Kelly, with other things where they've had blog posts or something that we've been kind of critical of. And it's been a while since we've done that, but it's not a fan favorite though. Or well, maybe, I, maybe it is to some fans. I know some might, some, but, but so, so to, to answer the question, why did I feel comfortable doing that? Um, first, it's because it was an open letter 
that was sent to us and sent to a lot of different people. And I found that interesting. And I thought, okay, well, here's an opportunity to talk about something. Um, but like what I really mainly wanted, you know, Matt, when, when you guys were having the conversation, which one was it? I don't remember which one it was. Um, it it might've been when, when he was talking about his, uh, blessing with his, his dad. Oh, Um, parents. Yeah. Yeah. It might've been that one, but, but he mentioned that he was pretty much done with infants on thrones. He only maybe had a couple of episodes left in him. Um, and you know, he and I had been talking about that for a while. I, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not, you know, two more episodes from that, but, but one of the ones he definitely wanted to do was a John DeLynn focused episode because he's been so annoyed at what he sees going on recently and hasn't known how to express it. So what he's been doing is dropping these little, yeah, you know, like barbs in, in several episodes, but without providing any context for why. And so, I wanted to be able to provide that context for listeners so that they know they understand better where Matt's coming from. And that's something that Matt's wanted to express. And I wanted to support that as well. Um, And, you know, I mean, I I don't, that, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it for me. Well, uh, one of the behind the scenes conversations that I had with Matt asking the same question, why run with this? Why have this as a discussion at all? And, and he said, well, if it's not us, who? And then he actually yeah. pointedly asked me, he said, Tom, who is going to talk about this? Who is? Is Lindsay going to talk about it? No. And I, I forget some of the other post-Mormon, ex-Mormon podcasts that are out there. But no one, I, I mean, there's, there's a pretty strong hesitation or fear of yeah. talking about this. And, and Matt's like, I mean, you know me, dude. I ain't fair. I ain't afraid of shit right now. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I mean, he has yeah. been. Yeah, he, he's his filter's not working like it should. But yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's recalibrating his filter. We'll, we'll say that. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, he's he is right that it definitely needed to be said, and you know the fact that the the author or authors of the open letter aren't even willing to put their names to it. Uh, kind of states that there is a fear of either sure. retaliation or something. Yeah. Well, e- even, you know, Amy and Tim and Sharon, who I spoke to, they, you know, they, they don't, they don't want anything bouncing back on them as well. They're, they're concerned, but they also same, don't want to have yeah, their Rosa, story told right? for them and they can't tell it themselves because of NDAs and all this stuff. But, but, but Colton, we've invited you on here, not just to listen to Tom and I talk, Oh yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd, I'd like to get your uh, your impressions as you listen to that episode, and then the Sam Young and the the postmortem yeah. to that. You know, like what and, and and these thoughts about like negativity towards the ex Mormon community or anything like that. That that yeah, in that email, most definitely. Sure. So uh, as I was listening to Tom just talk, you know, after that letter was you guys just read the letter, I was yeah. feeling similar things. Like this is a confusing thing. There's not just a right or a wrong here. Yeah. Um, I think, and don't let me speak for you guys and, you know, interrupt and correct me, but I think the majority of ex-Mormons feel like they are really appreciative and grateful of John DeLynn, of Jeremy Reynolds. Of course. Uh, Sam Young, you know, because they, they have done and continue to do really important work. Yep. Um, from you know kind of to analyze this thing we haven't even told you how much we hate jeremy runnels 
<laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Nobody hates Jeremy Runnels. Yeah, we love Jeremy. Um, let me start with a personal experience that I had a few weeks ago. So I, I occasionally, or I used to regularly attend the St. George ex-Mormon meetup group that meets up every Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's a really good group. Um, a lot of people find um, a lot of support there. Is, is Bill real in that group? Uh, he, I haven't seen him really much on the regular Sundays. He's presented before. Okay. Every every second Sunday we bring in speakers and anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, we have Sandra Tanner coming in next week. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, it's a really well done group and kudos to those who keep it going. Yeah. But just the kind of the ex Mormon group that meets every Sundays at the Smith's coffee shop or whatever. Um, a few week weekends ago, it was brought up that uh, they were trying to raise money to kind of advertise. Like the thought was, is let's get an airplane and run a banner at a BYU football game. You know, kind of like the billboards that John DeLynn is doing. Yeah. Sure. And, and it would point people towards John DeLynn's OSF. Okay. Oh, okay. And so they, and, and, and people were kind of discussing it and everybody's like, Oh, you know, that kind of be all really cool. And, and I kind of felt like inside, I was like, I don't like this. This seems odd to me. Why are we asking us to give money? And of course, everybody has their freedom to do whatever they want with their money. Yeah. And, and the guy who was presenting, I said, you know, I've been talking to John and these are some ideas and if we can raise some more money. And I just pointed out that I was trying to do it delicately, but I pointed out that if whatever banner or advertising they do or billboards they buy, I think it's important to recognize that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys know more about this than I do, that John is making money off of these things. Yeah. And just, just by me bringing that up, like I got a really negative reaction. He's, he's making money off of the, the group? Well, if you're like, if you run a banner, an air, airplane at a BYU game, and you direct people towards Open Stories Foundation. Oh, oh right. You're, you're advertising, advertising for, I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. You know, it's, it's under the guise and, and probably the main purpose is to spread information to help active sure. Mormons be more aware of issues or whatever. But it's directing them to a specific website where they're asking for donations that go into the pockets of certain right. people, which right. is fine. That's the way our capitalistic society works. Right. But by me just kind of pointing that out and say, you know, I think that would turn some people off other than the cheesiness of it. But the idea that they get on there and they see, oh, this is John DeLynn and he's asking for donations. Anyway, it was, I get it. I understand it. But I just pointed that out and I got a really negative reaction. Like I had essentially kind of questioned a sacred cow. Yeah. And I, and I think what, what happens and you guys have touched on this is when we're Mormons, we have our heroes that we look up to, which are usually general authorities, apostles, prophets. And when those people who give us guidance and counsel and make us feel warm and fuzzy, well, except for Oaks, but the rest of them, <laughs> um, we, we like that. I think there's just a human need that we want to feel connected and we need guidance because we don't like ambiguity. We like yeah. to know answers and we like you know to be able to look up to people to do that. And when those are ripped away from us, we're kind of left with, as you guys know, questioning everything. Yeah. yeah. And as a, ex-Mormons, we're, I think we still have that human need in us to look for guidance and a lot of these ex-Mormon celebrities have provided that and they've done a wonderful job. Again, John Dillon has done some amazing, amazing work. For sure. The prop, go ahead. Oh, I just said for sure. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so the problem is, is when we, you know, when we attach ourselves so dearly to these new sacred cows, and then if somebody questions those, it's like they're attacking us and our journeys and our integrity and our thoughts and our new beliefs. And so yeah, I think that's part of the, the reaction you guys are getting is how dare you go after these people who have done so much good work. And, yeah. and I didn't hear that in you guys, maybe Matt a little bit. It seems like he has an ax to grind, which is fine, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of space for that in an ex Mormon community. We're only just creating a new cult of our own. And it feels like a lot of us have to agree on everything and like everybody the same way and hate the church yeah. the same way. Yeah. Otherwise we don't fit in the group anymore. Yeah, well, it's 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 tough because if people do develop an emotional attachment to whether it's Delin or whether it's something that he did, and like that letter that you read, you know, one episode really changed that person's life or that person's marriage or whatever. I mean, you have a deep emotional connection or bond, and you know, Delin is just an interviewer for most of the. For, for the most part, like he, he, I mean, yeah, he, he does pontificate here and there, but for the most part, he's just interviewing guests. And so usually, and I'd, I'd even like to ask James a follow-up on that email, you know, was it the, was it the thing that was being discussed or was it the guest or was it a story or an experience that was being shared that kind of changed everything in that episode, whatever episode it was. But anyway, sometimes people superimpose that emotional connection of you know that life-changing thing that happened onto a person like Dylan. You know, he is, I mean, he's more than a messenger, right? He's he's more he's like the face of of this uh peaceful new lifestyle that they have now. Like, oh my life would have been chaos and turmoil if it wasn't for this person. And but in reality, it's not really him. It's it's kind of the thing that he's brought together or the guest that he interviewed or the story that was shared. He's, he's a more of a messenger than the actual thing, you know, but the thing is, yeah, like you said, Colton, we put baggage on having a mentor like that for better or for worse. And the thing is, is if he's, if he's not the greatest of guys or if he's imperfect or whatever, then it's going to be problems. Right. Yeah. And and you guys, uh, I don't think it's a mistake, but I'll just use that word. You guys made the mistake of pointing out that he's not the hero we all want him to be. And I think, I, I don't know John Dillon personally. I've communicated him briefly through emails here and there. I think he would admit that. I think he has admitted that. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. But I think, again, a lot of us kind of have this very human need or desire to have somebody to look to yeah. to kind of idolize because we're not in the spotlights ourselves. So we want somebody to be our voice. And he has been that voice for a lot of people. And, and healer too, I think. And, and, and I, and I think that, you know, I, I mentioned on that episode that we talked, uh, you know, Ryan and, and Matt and I talked for probably two and a half hours and a lot of that got cut out there. There was one, um, there was one line that I kind I you know or, or conversation uh, that I, I wish would have stayed in, um, and it, it's something that Kate Kelly raised. I don't remember if it was a year, year and a half ago. Whenever it was that that the, the Christy Money stuff came up with with John DeLynn, and and Kate was really annoyed at John for becoming a life coach 
and um, for basically practicing or, or, or setting himself up as a mental health professional, mental health provider without being licensed to do that. And so we talked about that a little bit in that episode. And that was also something that Matt was very concerned about. And, you know, so when Matt was talking about uh, John exploiting the vulnerable, it wasn't just about donations. There were, there were other things yeah, sure. that, that were behind that uh, as well. But, but ultimately, you know, Matt was the one that made the decision on the edits with that. And he thought, I don't, I don't want that to be distracting. It, it really didn't come up in the open letter. So there's really no, no point in piling on and having that there too. But, uh, but I'm curious, and I, I don't know how much you want to say about this or not, Colton, but you know, you, you are a licensed psychologist. Do you have a similar response to what John's doing or you think, you know, he's got a PhD, he's got experience in this more power to him. What, what's your opinion there? Yeah, he has a PhD. He has a lot of good training. Um, he's put in the hard work to my knowledge. And according to Doppel, he is not licensed as a psychologist. I don't know why <clears throat> I have my theories. I don't know if they really matter. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but for, for me personally to put in all that work and effort, um, I wanted the license so that I could obviously practice. So essentially when, when he kind of puts on his websites and stuff that he's a psychologist, yes, but he's not licensed. And, and, and I think, again, I don't know. And I, and I, I don't know if John even wants to talk about this or be willing to, but my guess is, is when you are licensed, you're confined by ethical and legal restraints when you're a life coach, there's not a lot of regulation to that. You can basically put on any workshops. You are under no obligations to your clients or their patrons or anything like that. There's not really a regulatory body for life coaches. And it's kind of like, and I'm not saying John is, but it's kind of like tele, televangelists mm. that get a bunch of followers and they can say and kind of do and put on and whether it's helpful or not, I guess to some people it is. And to a lot of John's followers or people that attend his things, he is very helpful, but I guess just as a professional speaking, it's a little confounding, bewildering that somebody who puts in all those years of effort and hard work, writes dissertations, does research. Um, I'm not sure why he hasn't taken that next step. What, what is the next step? I mean, do you, because do you, he didn't have to. Didn't, didn't have to. Why? Uh, cause he's already got his revenue stream. He's, Oh yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Cause there's people who hired by yeah, you sure. know, a university or Intermountain to, in order to do that, he's got, he's got a good practice going direct access to, a, um, yeah, to, to, to people. Yeah. I, I, um, and, and I, I, I want to be respectful of his wife, Margie as well, but I don't, it, it, it kind of made me question, well, what's going on here when he made, Margie a life coach as well. And they're, they're doing it. To, and, and maybe it's, I don't know, Tom, you've been, you've been involved in, in groups in Utah for mixed faith marriages. And I think that's kind of an area that they target. Um, there's probably therapy or, you know, things, advice, help that people are giving others that are outside of the, the realm of, um, you know, being a licensed psychologist, helping a couple in a faith transition. But um, what, what, what's your experience been like that, Tom? Is there a lot of that? H helping mixed faith marriages? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. There was one uh, licensed therapist that attended one of my meetings that I was hosting. And she approached my wife and I before and after and 
she was extremely over complimentary of how we were handling it. Mm. Um, but she also voiced some of her own concerns as far as like, cause I asked her, I said, why, why don't you, you know, moderate or host a little bit and why don't you kind of give your expertise? And she said, well, um, I have stronger, uh, I don't know, ethical or legal ramifications if I were to do that. Um, and I think it's a lot of what you were saying, Colton, that she, you know, she, her license could be removed if she handles things improperly or unethically. And, and a lot of times she kind of has to keep her, uh, I don't know, her, her training or her advice or her uh, clinical whatever uh, to pretty like a one-on-one or kind of a one-on-two sort of environment. And I, I'm completely unfamiliar with that whole area but it made a lot of sense and and she i mean she was like i'll continue to give you whatever support you can because colton's right when you when you're a life coach you don't even need a college degree to do it i mean anyone can do it Um, as long as you have you know charisma i guess (laughs) and the ability to give good advice people will keep coming but um i don't know it's 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 i don't i really don't know what else to say it's it's a really sticky gray area i guess you know, I think ethics and laws are put in place for a reason, particularly in our professions and the helping professions. And it's because to a lot of what Matt's points are, which is to protect the vulnerable. Yeah. The yeah. people that I work up with on a daily basis, the people that other therapists work with, the people that John work with, they're all in some sort of pain and suffering. And, and they are looking again. And in some ways, I become a sacred cow to some of my patients mm. I really like that. But I have to treat that with a lot of care and, 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 and be delicate with that because some people just accept my word as truth because I'm a psychologist. If they knew me better, they probably would. <laughs> but the, the point is, is, is like with what John is doing as I guess it's a life coach, um, he is reaching out to many people. And he again, he has been very helpful. I mean, that is that is not in dispute here. But I, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, what if one of those people are suicidal in his audience? What are his responsibilities at that point? Um, as a psychologist, I know what mine would be, but these people are paying him, um, and yet there's not really an ongoing relationship. Maybe there is. Maybe he has an ongoing relationship with all of the people he meets with. But, so anyway, there, I'm just trying to take the point. There's a reason that us licensed professionals have a lot of ethics and laws it's to protect the patients that we're working with and to protect ourselves as professionals. Um, that like another example is, you know, you guys talked about this. I, uh, I guess John put a Facebook post saying, basically I'm coming to California. Can anybody pay for my ticket or right. come with me, post me. I cannot do that as a psycho, as a licensed psychologist. I can't put on a workshop and tell people who are paying me for to come to put me up and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. There would be some serious ethical questions come into play at that point. Even if, um, even if you were sponsored, am, Colton, sorry, even if you were like sponsored by like, let's say OSF wanted to hire you as part of a workshop. Right. So that, that would be different um, okay. if they're paying me, but I'm not going on Facebook and pleading with the people who will be attending oh, yeah, yeah. to kind of pay my way there. If the foundation wanted to do it, it's muddy. It's complicated. Again, he is, he has every right to do that. I'm just saying, I think if he was licensed, he would think twice about how he was doing that. 
Even though that that wasn't associated at all with his life coaching practice, that was just an interview for his podcast. That that would still raise an issue. It, it I guess I I would agree with me. It, it comes across as uh, I don't know uh, televangelist. You know, mm. it, it feel it doesn't feel. Oh, that's the psychology. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't. Yeah. There's something about it that why don't you pay your own way kind of a thing. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. okay. because again, he knows he has followers. He knows people are be like, "Oh, heck yeah!" You know, this is John Delin. He's you know he's done so much for me. It's the least I can do to pay him back. It's the same thing that general authorities do. It's the same thing when rich LDS members show up to a GA's houses and offer to pay off their mortgages for him because Jeez. you know going to get him to heaven. I've ne- I've never even considered that, but of course, <laughs> never even thought that before. But yeah, duh. no, it oh, it, it happens, and it Jeez. has happened. And, and <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, so so do, do do you meet with people who are going through um, or, or have gone through this separation? The you know the the faith crisis or the transition or do what do you ever want to say it? Is that is that kind of a common thing that psychologists are trained on how to treat a, a, a faith transition or a faith crisis, or is that something that's unique to, to Mormons, to, to Utah? Um, I, I would say it's pretty unique. I think it's on the uptick and I would like to think that a lot of graduate programs are working on getting better training in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly folks who work with Mormons, I think they're getting more and more of it. As a therapist, I have no agenda when somebody comes into my office and wants to talk about that stuff. Mm. Um, I, I make it very well known from the beginning that this is where I am, but whatever they want to do with it is, is, is their decision. Like, I do not make any decisions for them. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't advertise as that's my specialty because it's not, but you know, word gets around when you're considered a safe mm. therapist or an ex-Mormon therapist that then people will purposely seek you out because they know they can talk to you about things. It also works the opposite that there are people who will not meet with me because I am an ex Mormon and a therapist at the same time. But I do not put the hat on as I'm an ex Mormon therapist. I don't put that label on myself. I'm a psychologist and I see lots of different things. Um, uh, But, and part of that is people's spirituality. And so I've worked with, people of the Muslim faith who have left. I've worked with Jehovah witnesses who have left. I've worked with a lot of Mormons who are leaving. I actually have a patient right now who is trying, who is staying in, but her parents are out. And so we're helping her navigate that. And again, no agenda on my side, but whatever the patient decides to go, whatever direction they decide to go in, I'm more than happy to join them on that journey. Which is good because, you know, I don't know. Sometimes we get so fixated on a faith crisis or faith transition that it's just this single singularity sort of deal. And it's not, there's so many things and factors and it's like, it's so complicated, you know, family relationships and identity issues and you know, even suicidal thoughts and stuff like that. And, and marriages and kids and all that stuff. Like it, it's so complicated and messy. And that's why I appreciate what you're saying, Colin, because, you know, you kind of have to have a wide range uh, in your tool belt, you know, to be able to say, okay, now what, now what you're talking about isn't anything to do with a faith transition. This is, you know, this has something much deeper with something much more meaningful. And, and the thing is, is like, even going back to the support groups that, that I was doing, like there, there were people in severe, severe trauma, 
And, and all I could do was just say, you need to find, a, you know, professionals. And I always had a list of, you know, local therapists and stuff like that. You need to seek professional help. This is not professional help, what, what you have here. And, you know, I would try to follow up. But the thing is, is you know, people do their, their own thing. Some people can't afford it. Some people's insurance doesn't cover it. And that's extremely disheartening in that. And that's why people go to support groups is as a replacement to therapy, actual professional therapy. And that's, that's not good. And, and in a lot of ways, that's, you know, when people are experiencing trauma in whatever way, shape or form, and they turn to Delin, who's free, you know, his podcasts are free. And, and a lot of times he'll even interact with you or have lunch or an ice cream cone with you. Um, they'll lean on that saying, Hey, you know, can you be my substitute professional therapist? And sometimes he doesn't, well, sometimes, or all the time, he doesn't turn that down. Now that he's taken this life coach approach, maybe sometimes he, he's even embracing that substitute therapist role. I don't know. Yeah. Ex, ex Mormons are not, are, are not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not immune to mental illness. And so sure. you know, leaving the faith is one, one, and often a big, uh, trigger for them. But a lot of these folks struggle with mental health issues before they left Mormonism. And in fact, that might be some of the reasons they left Mormonism. Mm. And so that's why I'm, I'm, I don't ever, I don't ever want to make my full practice just faith transitions because right. I get, to be honest with you, you know, I, I'm trained to work with, you know, actual diagnosable mental health concerns, major depression, obsessive compulsive personality disorders. I mean, high functioning autism. Those are the things that, you know, that I enjoy the diversification of the patients that I see. And again, uh, for an ex Mormon to come in, yeah, we might talk about that faith transition, but if there are other things going on, that's where a lot of the focus probably should be, um, in my opinion. But it's, again, it's up to the patient on what they want to talk about, but if there are real certifiable uh, diagnosable mental health issues, we've got to address those too. And I don't, and I don't think those are addressed in support groups or in workshops and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you've, you've listened to, um, some of our more recent episodes, you've heard what I've had to say about, cognitive distortions and, and CBT and, and you're, you're trained in this, you're licensed in this. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and, and, and maybe smack me down, maybe critique my approach to, to what you've heard, where, where have I been right? Where have I been wrong? And, uh, then I'd, I'd kind of like to go through a list of some of these cognitive distortions and just get your take on it. Um, you know, what it is and where we see it in Mormon or ex Mormon culture. Yeah, so I, I am a trained cognitive behavior therapist. That's my wheelhouse. That is my theory of change. That is my treatment approach with many of my patients, but not all. As, essentially, if you know, I like to simplify things. And so I'm going to talk kind of the way I speak with a lot of my patients, not because we're not intelligent, but just to make things clear. Um, the basic premise, and again, this is my spin on cognitive behavior therapy. Sure. Uh, but the basic premise of cognitive behavior therapy is is that two people can experience the same event, but have very different outcomes from that event. Yeah. The reason that cognitive behaviorists would say that that is, is because of what they're telling themselves about the event that occurred. Yeah. 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 So, so essentially as a therapist, what I'm trying to do or to facilitate is try, I'm trying to get into the mindset of my patient, see what's troubling them, 
get inside their mind and their internal dialogue and identify if they do have these cognitive distortions. I refer them to them as irrational beliefs. Mm. And I actually break them down to three main ones that kind of consume all of that list of 17. Yeah. But that's just my particular brand of CBT. And, and if we can identify those and label them and then learn how to dispute them, both cognitively and then behaviorally through our actions, I have found, as with my patients, that that can be often helpful and healing. Not for everybody, yeah. but for a lot of folks, that's what, that, that can be very helpful. Do, 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 the, do the thoughts that we have influence the feelings that we feel? Is, is that yeah. part of this? Yes. Yeah. So I think, for example, let me, let me use an analogy or an example. Um, let's say that there's two twin sisters that are freshmen in college who go to a freshman dance. Okay. So they're new to university. They go to this dance. Um, we've all been to dances before. They're weird. They're awkward in the beginning. And then by the end of the night, everybody's proposing marriage to each other. Or whatever. <laughs> but if it's at BYU Idaho anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but neither of these two twin sisters get asked to dance. So the dance is over. Twin A goes back home and she's feeling all sorts of emotions pretty intensely. She's angry. She's, she's, she's sad. She has feelings of worthlessness. And what she's telling herself, so her internal dialogue are things like, somebody should have asked me to dance. What's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me. Why did everybody else get asked to dance? This is awful. I can't stand this. Okay. So those are the kind of thoughts that she's having. And she doesn't sleep well that night. She misses her classes in the morning, et cetera. Whereas twin B goes home and she's upset too, but she's feeling frustrated and annoyed and confused. And she's telling her things herself, things like this sucks. It would have been nice if I got asked to dance. Why didn't I? I wonder why, you know what? I've got other things to worry about. I've got classes again. You know, she's, she, she's feeling sad, but she sleeps fine. She makes it to class. Okay. So the idea is, is the only difference between those two twins is not necessarily their upbringing or their environment. It's more of how they're interpreting the event that occurred. And twin A is displaying the three most common irrational beliefs or cognitive distortions that I work with, which we call catastrophizing, which is one you've talked about, mm -hmm. which is human rating. So there's something wrong with me because I didn't get asked to dance. You know, I'm lower on the scale of human worthiness than others that did get asked to dance. And then finally demanding that somebody should have asked me to dance and they didn't. And that's what's causing her to be angry. Whereas twin B was displaying more rational, thoughtful, uh, more rational thoughts. Like it would have been nice if, so preferences. Um, she wasn't blaming herself or feeling worthless that there's something wrong with her. It just kind of is what it is. And that it sucks, but it's not terrible. And so that's what I try to do with my patients is move them from the extreme thinking patterns, the irrational thinking patterns to more rational, realistic thinking patterns, not positive thinking, ra rational and realistic. Mm. When we think in more rational, realistic ways, that has a much softer impact on the intensity of the emotions that we experience. And when we're not experienced really intensely negative emotions, we're able to choose and act uh, in healthier ways. How, how how do people learn how to change the way that they think? Because, you know, like, I, it, it seems like a lot of people would, like a twin A, might think, how could you not think that 
this is a reflection on me. Of course, if I was better, if, you know, if I was higher on the hierarchy of beautiful people or, or whatever, then of course I would have been asked to dance. So this must be like, how could you even see it any other way? How, how do you get people who are in that place to, to change? <laughs> and that, that's the hard part. And that's, that's yeah. the whole point of being a psychologist in treatment. And so, so what I do with that is, you know, you guys have done these episodes on the, the street epistemologist or whatever. Yeah, right. They're trying to do it. And some of them are more successful at it than others. But they're using the Socratic questioning method, which mm-hmm. we use a lot in cognitive behavior therapy, too. So like with, the, with that, you're come back to that. You're being twin A and you're saying, well, I am worth less than others because I didn't get asked to dance. I would challenge that belief. First, I would educate her about human rating. Okay. This idea that not getting asked to dance determines somebody's worth. So when we say it like that, many people can go, well, that kind of sounds off because it is. I mean, when it comes to human rating, we use all sorts of superficial, silly ways of measuring our worth of comparing and contrasting ourselves with others. Like if I make more money then I'm better than my neighbor, if I'm a Bishop, then I'm more worthy than this other guy. Uh, if, if I'm six foot five versus a five foot four guy, I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. So human rating again, basically is, is just applying these superficial irrational conditions to our worth as people. And so what I try to do is help them understand that. And then the work falls upon them to throughout in between our sessions to identify when they're doing that yeah. and to cognitively challenge it and then behaviorally challenge it. Mm. And, and that can be complicated and it is really challenging for a lot of people. Some people can get it pretty quickly. Others, these, these, these irrational beliefs are so ingrained in how they perceive themselves in the world that it is challenging. It is really challenging. Yeah. Cause it's hard wiring that you're trying to rip out of their brains. And sometimes yeah, especially for, I assume, that patient, because I'm just thinking of myself here, uh, that it feels impossible. It, it, it's like their identity is so tied up into that negative thinking cycle that, you know, it's like, I'm not going to get out of this. It's impossible. Like, if I could just snap out of it, then I would. Why not, you know? Right. And, and it's not that easy of just snapping out of it. Right. So that's, it, you know, we do return visits. And when they come back, right. like, I will actually practice with them disputations i'll have them keep record in between our sessions of when they were able to dispute things and when they weren't and usually it becomes most difficult when we're feeling really intense emotional reactions right so let's use an example from your podcast is that okay that i was listening i would love Um, you to yeah and i I would i I really wish matt was here i i just was floored by his he'd probably yell at you no, everybody. He wouldn't be the first he or the hates last. Everyone. <laughs> um, but he did such an amazing job. But but when he was interviewing Sam Young, I mean, that I was riveted. Really? Um, oh, you, didn't, yeah. you didn't think that he was over the line in that? Uh, I would question what over the line means. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty subjective. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. But, but as a psychologist, you didn't go, oh boy, this person is unstable. No, no, not okay. even close. Yeah. Because it, in my You're welcome, opinion, Matt. Yeah. I just wanted to get that on record. You're welcome, Matt. <laughs> Psychologically stable. Psychologically stable. In my opinion, Matt was coming from a, pay, a, a place of care yeah. and concern and expertise. Now, the tone issues, look, I get it. I've been accused of tone issues as well. Um, I often tell people that no matter how you say something, 
how nicely sometimes you try to say it, somebody's going to get offended. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of human nature. That doesn't mean we just run around punching people in the face and say, you know, F all right. Yeah. You know, fuck all you guys. But, but anyway, so tone does matter and tact and delivery. And a lot of our training as psychologists is learning how to deliver hard and difficult feedback. Okay. So what I was really impressed by, or, or what I was going to analyze here real quick is I would argue that the reason Matt's tone got really elevated and escalated is because he has a demand. Okay. He has shoulds yeah. about how Sam must talk about sexual abuse. He was essentially saying, Sam, you must not use the word grooming inappropriately. Mm -hmm. And what I would argue with Matt is, is Matt, you might be correct in your definition of what grooming is, but to demand that Sam shouldn't do that is actually irrational because Mm. Sam can do that. And he has done that. Does that make it right or healthy or helpful? No. But the argument it is, is that demands actually don't exist in real life. They're just all a mental construct. So let me break that down a little further. Demanding is when we tell ourselves, others, or the world that there are certain things that we have to, must, should, ought, or need to do. So those five things are all absolutes, right? I need to be a good person. They must not talk to me that way. He shouldn't use that word. And what we find is when people have demands upon others and their demands are not being met, that leads to a lot of anger. Mm. And I think that's what was happening with Matt in that instance. He had a demand that Sam not misuse this word and he was misusing it. Mm-hmm. It's not a question if it was right or wrong or justified. It was a question of what if Matt, you just had a preference that he didn't use that word. And I bet if he had a preference that he didn't use that word incorrectly, his tone would have been more modified. Mm. He wouldn't have felt as maybe angry as he was. He may have still would have been frustrated, but that's fine. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, no, yeah. It does make a ton of sense. Like, I, I think you're right, but I, it's like I was kind of picturing myself as you're talking about this in Matt's shoes of putting demands on others because I'm just as guilty as anyone that does that because we want to control what we can control. And and sometimes our, our patience is worn thin or for whatever reason, it's like, okay, I, I have to put this in control. I'm not going to let my kid not get away with not cleaning his room or whatever it is. You know, it's like, I've got to, I've got to control this situation because you know, my patience is too worn thin. And so, yeah, I, I see, why you'd want to kind of push that onto someone else. But, but I also see why that's damaging and it's not really, uh, it's not really existing, I guess, but in that person's mind, it's as real as anything, you know? Right. And that's what makes it challenging is for ourselves to take a really good look at ourselves and, and identify when we are demanding things or when we are cast catastrophizing about things or when we are thinking in dualistic terms about things. And it's not, nobody's asking for perfection here, but just to be able to catch ourselves every now and then. And if it's causing us more problems than it is good, if it's causing us a lot of feelings of worthlessness or a lot of feelings of anxiety, then, you know, that's why we need, you know, it's healthy, healthy and helpful to check those things and to try to change our internal belief systems about it. You know, I, I just using another example, I think a lot of people are familiar with Sam Harris, um, 
Uh-huh. I think Sam Harris does a pretty good job of monitoring his own demands about the way the world should work. You don't see him get upset a lot. He might get irritated and annoyed, but I just think he does a good job of kind of checking and not getting defensive. I think, he get, I think he goes into that should thing though a lot. Well, Especially yeah, when he's talking about like religion and how people should think. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I, I think. But I don't think he's trying to enforce that on people. Does that make sense? Okay. Like, I think it's a, I think he has a very strong preference about religious and religious, you know, religiosity, but I don't think he's stomping his feet and pounding the pulpit and yelling and screaming. And this is how it must be. Does that make sense? Sure. I think he has a really strong preference, which is completely healthy and appropriate. Hmm. Yeah, I don't want to get into analyzing Sam Harris because I'll fuck. <laughs> I think my fanboy will come out where I'll start defending him. <laughs> How dare you criticize Sam Harris? Oh, that's my sacred cow my I'm sacred my cow. wagon to. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so could you repeat the because th- you said that you have three general um, irrational beliefs slash cognitive distortions um, that, that you deal with. And if I remember right, it was. Uh, you just say them. Uh, demanding. So the belief that you, someone else of the world, should, must, have to, ought to, need to. Okay. Uh, catastrophizing. And this catastrophizing is where anxiety lives. Mm. This current situation is terrible, horrible, and awful. Or it's when you're always predicting the worst possible outcome. Mm-hmm. So I have a test tomorrow in my math class. I just know I'm going to fail. Okay. Uh, and then the final one is human rating, where essentially we're, we're labeling ourselves as either a good or a bad person with really silly and superficial ways of doing so. Okay. For example, so, I, I, I had a patient recently. Um, she has very red hair and, and she turns red when she gets embarrassed and she hates it. Mm-hmm. She can't stand it. And it only makes it worse, right? Yeah. So she has this belief that she must not turn red when she's embarrassed, that others are negatively judging her when she does, and that it's awful when she does it as well. Mm-hmm. So she kind of has the perfect triad of all three of those main irrational beliefs. Yeah, but that's really nothing she can like control, right? That's just a biological reaction, right? Okay, so you won't be surprised. You know, she knows that, and I explain that to her. <laughs> but, but. So that, that's the hard thing about being a therapist is as an, you know, we can, I can quickly, you know, kind of dissect people's irrational thoughts. That doesn't do much good. The, the, <laughs> trick, is, the, the, the trick is, is, is teaching them how to do it. Yeah, of course. Right. Of course. Yeah. And, and actually having them be persistent with it, which is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I've been, I, I've been consuming this stuff. You know, I went and I got the, the David Burns book, Feeling Good. And, you know, I've been listening to that a lot. And how's that book? I haven't read that one. It's good. Yeah. It's okay. good. Yeah. Um, and it was a goodie written in the eighties, I believe. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. End of the nineties, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's, or, or yeah, I think you're right. There was an early version of it. Um, yeah. In, in the eighties. So, it's so I, I want to. First cognitive behaviorism is. Say that again. It's basically just a self-help book on CBT. Right. And, and, and a lot of uh, tools, uh, ways to keep track of it yourself and, and do the thing, you know, it, 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 the book starts off with a lengthy validation of its own existence, <laughs> you know, by, by saying there have been studies done that show that, 
you know, X percentage. And I don't remember what I think it was high, like around 75% of people who just, just by reading that book alone, start to identify and, and be able to un, unravel some of these cognitive distortions that they get stuck in, but other people need more than just the book. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good book. So I would recommend that. Um, but, uh, I'd like to go through some of the cognitive distortions and see where they fall in those three categories that that you use, Colton. So the, the first one on this list is the all or nothing thinking or the polarizing thinking. So where, where would you put that? And, and what, what are some examples of that that you see? So that one, I, I actually wouldn't include my top three. And I've been thinking about this in the last couple of days because it's such a common thing that we see is this dualistic, you know, either we're all good or we're all bad. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. I would let that stand alone as, as is that just dualistic polar polarized thinking is irrational. It's unhealthy and it should be challenged. Okay. Huh. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, in, in the response to our criticism of John DeLynn and, you know, our discussion about that open letter, even in the email that I read from James, he's like, He's done some good things, but then there's this bad stuff. Why, why do I have to get rid of all of the good stuff that the Mormon church has been for me? Yeah. Um, you know, like, do, do I have to get to a place where all that's behind me? I don't really want it to be behind, you know, I, to, to me, that's, he's coming from a place of, um, being used to the all or nothing black. I'm not saying that he does this, but that's, that's what it sounds like to me, um, in there. Yeah, it right. does to me, and I yeah, because I I do or have thought that way. I I try to think less that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's a there's a hap, there's a happy middle ground. John Delin can do good behaviors, and he can do poor behaviors, just yeah. like anybody else. Anybody else? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah, that's part of the human condition, and sure. it doesn't mean that he's just a bad, evil person, and it doesn't mean he's the greatest person ever. It's just that he's human like all of us that we do good and bad things, but that does not determine our worth. And that's where it ties into human rating. Right. Human rating. Oh yeah. These can, can yeah, lead into that. Um, but before I go to the next one, just the, you know, this, this, this premise that I floated on a couple of episodes that the Mormon church um, promotes and reinforces um, these cognitive distortions. Do, do you think that that's a fair thing for me to say, or is that, am I overstepping? Uh, like yeah. like Mormon culture, church culture. Well, not even culture. It's the whole doctrine. It's, yeah. it's black and white. I mean, they love dualism. Yeah, right. You know, it's us against the world. Either yeah. you're in or you're out. You know, you guys have stated it. Gordon Hinckley's quote, which I love, um, is either it's a, or it's a or it's a fraud. Yeah. So, so you know, he drew that line in the sand, but uh, I don't think he knew it was coming. No offense, Gordon, but you weren't too prophetic in that. Because Ooh. the internet was on its way. He's still got more people on his side of the line than on ours, so he's <laughs> doing all right. <laughs> well, I suppose. There's a couple billion that aren't Mormons still. So. Well, that's true. That's, that's, that's true. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I think they live in dualism. They live in, in the idea of human rating that when it comes to sin, Worthiness, if you yeah. do bad things, then you are bad things. If you even think yeah. that, then you even need to repent for that. And that is terribly damaging, by the way especially with people with anxiety disorders. Yeah. 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 Or even depression. You know, if you think about, you know, suicide or something like that, I mean, that's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it gets tied into the religious, to this, to the religion side of it. And it's, it's pretty damaging to folks. 
And, and, and the only reason I really want to draw any attention to this at all is, is just to let, you know, people who were raised in the Mormon church, especially know if, if you have these cognitive distortions, it's not your fault, you know, like everybody, whether you're Mormon or not, I mean, it's a pretty common thing. People get, get these irrational beliefs and, and cognitive distortions, but especially coming out of this culture, we're, we're going to have this, you know, like, what did you say, Tom, earlier? It's hardwired into us, you know, just these, yeah. these ways of reacting and responding that we've been conditioned um, by the culture around us to, to react in these ways. Since a, a lot of us, since, since we were little kids. And, and so it, it shouldn't be surprising or embarrassing to go, oh, okay, I have this. Let's, let's uh, try and identify these and root these out. Uh, the second one on this list is overgeneralization. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, that could relate to a couple of them. Uh, essentially, boy, my mind just went blank. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll 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 read you what it says here, and you can think about it. Um, he, he's, it says this sneaky distortion takes one instance or example, and it generalizes it to an overall pattern. So a student who receives a C on a test might conclude, oh, that means that I'm stupid and a failure. Okay, so that would be human rating, what that student just said. It could okay. also be catastrophizing that I messed up once, therefore I'm always going to mess up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That I didn't get asked to that dance, therefore yeah. I'm undesirable, I'll never get asked to another dance. Is, it, I, is, is this scratching the itch of the imposter complex or imposter syndrome, Colton? Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think all, uh, a lot of people who go into psychology feel that during graduate school. Seriously, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. sure. like, yeah. I don't belong here. I can't help people. What am I doing? How did I get into right. this program? I know I felt that quite a bit coming from BYU-Idaho into a doctorate program. Like, I, did, I felt like I really did not belong. Um, I didn't feel prepared. Um, so, yeah, the imposter syndrome that essentially that 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 you know that you don't belong and you're just really worried that everybody else notices well, that too. Yeah, that's, so, kind of, that's kind of a human rating thing, right? Yes, exactly. You're rating yourself below where you think that you ought to be. Well, see, that's... Right. And, and if people find out, that would be awful. Oh, yeah. yeah right. And then you're catastrophizing. Yeah. So that's then, why That's why when you read that... Against again, together. Oh, sorry. That's why when you read that example about the, you know, when I get... Uh, a C for my grade, then obviously I'm a failure Yeah. Because in their mind. And I'm only just projecting myself into this, but when in your mind, if you feel like you're a failure at all, you know, in all of life or whatever, and then there's just this one example, like, Oh, I just got to see when I was right. expecting, you know, something better or whatever, then this just exposes that, uh, that I am a failure, my, that hidden truth that I'm keeping inside. Yeah. Like you said, Colton, I, I want people to know that I'm a failure because I'm trying to live this facade that I'm a good person when I'm really not. Yeah. I, I, I've got John Hamer in my head singing from one data point, they drew a line. <laughs> you <remember> that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's the overgeneralization right there. Yeah. Um, so uh, number three is a mental filter. And this one says similar to overgeneralization, the mental filter dis distortion focuses on a single negative and excludes all the positives. Right. Uh, probably again, human rating and a mixture of catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
disqualifying the positive, that seems very similar to what we just read with the mental filtering, um, yeah. where anything that positive happens, um, you just reject that instead of embrace it because it doesn't. And, and well, while we're talking about this disqualifying the positives, you, you mentioned this um, er, earlier, Colton, when you we were talking about how people can learn how to address their own thought patterns. And you were saying to be more realistic, not more positive. You, you made a point of saying not more positive. Could you explain why you, why you made that point? Yeah, because I hate people who I shouldn't say hate. I, I really have a hard time. <laughs> no, you I really have a hard time. You hate the people who do it. <laughs> <laughs> I really have a hard time with people who are Pollyannish. Right, Pollyanna. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I think that comes honestly, truthfully, um, because of my experience with the church, yeah. where everybody is pretending like everything is great on Sundays. You know, we all put on our best, we all smile, we all shake hands, everything is great. And and, and everybody is wonderful and look who we are anyway. So it feels really inauthentic and fake to yeah. me. And so I actually tell my patients that if you ever have a therapist that tells you just to think positively, walk out of their office. Because the truth is, is not everything is positive. There are some really yeah. hard, difficult things in the world. Um, and so I'm a big believer in thinking rationally and realistically as best as we can. And it's what, not, not that it's bad to think positive things or to be hopeful, yeah. but if your idea of counteracting depression is just to hum your favorite hymn <laughs> or whatever, that's, that's not going to work out too well. What, 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 if, what if you just really try to find something to be thankful for in every, every even shitty situation and turn <laughs> it into, okay, yeah, I got hit by a car, um, but that teaches me that I need to be more careful when I drive, you know, or something like that. That's a, that's a terrible example. <laughs> but but um, it, w- w- would you have the same averse reaction to that um, as to people? Is that the same thing as just like putting a positive spin on everything? Uh, I, I feel like that's a little different. So that would okay. be like anti-catastrophizing. So your example I just got in a car wreck. You can freak out about that and say, this is the most awful thing that's ever happened to anybody ever. Mm -hmm. But I would counter with that is, is that true? Could it have been worse? Mm -hmm. And the truthful answer is yes, it could have been worse. So I'm grateful that it wasn't. That to me is realistic and rational. That's different than I'm so glad I got in a car wreck. Mm -hmm. This is do wonders for my life. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that to me, it's on a different level where there's no basis for it. It's just, Correct. Okay. So, so in other words, when upon life's billows, you are tempest tossed <laughs> and you are discouraged thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You, you really, Colton, are you still there? Colton, did we lose you? You lost me. I think our time is up. I'm ready for <laughs> yeah, really. If you chance to see a frown, do not let it stay. What? No, those aren't positive messages that the church gives that are starting there anything good about those. What's that? I said, I'm starting to relive some trauma all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) Getting triggered. Oh, that that reminds me of another question I was going to ask you earlier. Does it ever bother, bother you when people use the word trauma and they're referring to things that aren't technically trauma? Uh, I don't think I'm too demanding about that. That's nice. That's a good answer. Because who who can decide what's traumatic for somebody else? Yeah. What about the word triggered then? About what about it? 
Well, like if someone's, <laughs> if someone's saying, you know, well, when every time you bring up car accident, I get triggered because of that car accident that I had a couple of weeks ago oh, or something like that. I'd say, well, that's, that's good. Let's talk about it because exposure therapy is probably going to be the most helpful thing for you. I know, oh. but, 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 but if the person says that constantly, like at every little insequential sort of event, oh. like, oh, now, now, now I'm getting triggered because of that bad test I took. Now I'm getting triggered about this. I mean, is there, is there even like a, I don't know, a scale where you're like, okay, dude, you're, you're overusing the term and you might not actually be getting triggered here. Like you might actually be super. So I, I, it would probably annoy me like it would annoy most other people. But again, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I'd be demanding that they not use that word. Oh, you, know? you wouldn't. You wouldn't like give them a correction on that. Okay, probably not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to go down and read all the things on this list. I've done that before on episodes. I'm not going to repeat that. Um, but uh, you, 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 you just now mentioned exposure therapy, and that's something that that uh, Jonathan I talks about in that book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, that it, it seems like, uh, and this ties into what you're saying about triggering, Tom. That if there's topics that make people feel uncomfortable, then they just say, "Don't, don't bring that up because that makes me feel uncomfortable." We need and a safe space to be and, able to. And, and yeah, so you're shaking <laughs> your so you're shaking your head violently, Colton. <laughs> it's, it's, please express why you're shaking your head violently. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Um, it, when we, when we, oh boy, I'm going to sound like Bill Maher probably. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I'm reading that book that you're referring to the calling of the American mind. Yeah. And, and I couldn't agree more. So therefore we must always be right about it. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's been taken to an extreme where we are censoring and getting really upset about whatever we want to get upset about that day. Yeah. Now, certainly there are things that are very sensitive and trauma-inducing and et cetera, that, that healthy individuals who want to be kind and appropriate with others are going to be mindful of. But I think it's been taken to an extreme that's, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, this goes into politics and a lot of other things in our society where people are losing their minds over things that we should really go, really, this is where you're going to plant your flag. And this is what your cause is all of a sudden. And so even as I teach classes now at a university, like I kind of have this weird paranoia that I'm going to say something not politically correct. Right. That's offensive and not with no intention of doing so. Yeah. Uh, And then I'm going to get fired or somebody's going to report me. I mean, it kind of feels like that's, that is going on to some extent. I don't think it's as bad as Bill Maher wants to make it out to be, but I do think it is happening. Yeah. So back to the exposure therapy. So let, let me talk about where this comes from. Okay. So for individuals who have been through trauma or individuals with anxiety disorders or with phobias or particularly with obsessive compulsive disorder, a lot of them have learned and appropriately so that they need to avoid certain situations, places, or talking about things. The problem with that is when we avoid those things, we give them power over us. So let me be really specific and talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. So OCD is a neurological disorder where people will have bizarre and scary and unwanted thoughts that come to their mind, which triggers their anxiety and their anxiety builds and builds and builds. And it gets to the point where they cannot handle it anymore. So then they develop these uh, compulsive behaviors 
to temporarily reduce their anxiety. For example, um, they believe that if they go out in public and use a public restroom, that, that then they will be contaminated and dirty with germs and they can't stand the thought of that. And so they avoid public restrooms at all costs. Or if they use a public restroom, they have to wash their hands in a ritualized way in order to become clean. So that's, that's like kind of classic OCD. Or another example is uh, one for LDS folks that I've worked with is that I had, I once in high school um, made out with this girl and I got aroused. And so I am now a sinner and that caused me a lot of anxiety. So I need to go confess that to my bishop. Well, as they leave the office, they think maybe I didn't say everything just right. And that's where the obsession comes in. They sit and think about it and they think, oh, what if he didn't understand me? So they knock on the door again and they reconfess. And the next week they come back again and they reconfess again. So the compulsion is the behavior. The obsession is the worry and the thought. Okay, so what does this have to do with exposure therapy? Well, exposure and response prevention therapy is we deliberately put people in those situations. So with the hand washing thing, I will purposely, with my patient's permission and understanding after I explain this, we will go to a public restroom and we will hang out and we will touch the toilet seats and we will touch the walls and I will have them pat their clothes down with their contaminated hands. And then we must resist the compulsion because every time they do a compulsion, it only reinforces their obsession. But if we're able to get them to a point where they can expose themselves on purpose to their fear, tolerate their anxiety, sit with it, and then not give in to their compulsions, that's when they start winning the battle against OCD. Mm. So it seems antithetical to the idea that I'm deliberately putting my patients in frustrating and upsetting circumstances. But the reason we're doing that is if they can learn to tolerate it and deal with it, a process of habituation takes place and it can literally rewire the brain to where they can learn that I can go in a public bathroom and I don't have to do all these compulsions. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're making new pathways in their brain and kind of forming new habits or coping the mechanisms they can turn to instead of the self-destructive things. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the main example, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and it's, and it needs to be done with expertise and training and it's complicated. Yeah. Again, we're, we're directly exposing people to their various traumas, whatever is causing them a lot of anxiety. And with PTSD, this is also the preferred treatment of choice as we're trying to get, you know, soldiers or, uh, uh, survivors of trauma to kind of relive that in a safe, healthy environment where they are more in control rather than avoiding all of those things and letting it control them. Yeah, that's that's why I think it's great that you've mentioned that you need to have someone who's professionally trained and an expert in this situation because it's such a delicate thing, if, especially if you're introducing a person who, who uh, you know, they're in sort of their worst case scenario by, you know, touching, you know, dirty things or whatever, like, because at, at that moment, you know, you don't know what kind of reaction, they might not even know what kind of reaction that they are going to have in the moment. And, you know, for just some lay person to be like, toughen up, you know, tough love, suck it up, get your head in there. That, that could be the worst thing ever. Instead of saying, okay, you know, obviously we've hit your limit, let's pull back. Yeah, that's why yeah, again, I just want to reemphasize the importance of an expert or someone who's professionally trained in this. So, yeah. Yeah, because if you're, if you're just doing it willy-nilly, you can do more damage than you are Absolutely, good. absolutely. 
Cool. Well, I think we're, we're hitting an hour and a half here and uh, it's been great having this conversation with you, Colton. And I hope that uh, we can call on you as an expert in the future when we need it, because we're probably going to need it. Yeah. You guys most certainly do. Like, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> right? <laughs> the truth comes out. Everyone except Matt. <laughs> Matt is my new hero. I don't know him. Yeah. But, uh, well, I was just a super- hero. And, well, no, okay. I'm not going to hero worship Matt, but I was just impressed by him. <laughs> I was equally, I was equally impressed with Sam's response too. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. That was, that was just a, a demonstration in conflict management and resolve. And I thought both of them did a really good job. Then did, yeah. did, did you did you get a sense for my uh, discomfort during the whole? Yeah, thing? no, I, I no, I totally understand how people would listening to that would be like, holy cow, you know, let's Sam's trying to do a good thing. Why are we, you know, using him as a pinata right now? But I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think there wasn't a right or wrong there. I think both people need to be heard, and I think it's important what Matt was saying, and I think it's equally as important as what Sam is doing and trying to do. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to be fair, like I, I, I kind of fell into the mentality of Sam Young is kind of a sacred cow and he should deserve the immunity card on this. And, you know, maybe some push and some challenges were, you know, warranted, but I felt like some of his uh, Matt's sharpness was a little over the line, whatever that yeah. line is, you know, and I'm, I'm not yeah. even sure I could carefully define what that line is. It just felt that way. Anyway. Well, he, he, again, not to beat a dead horse, but he did get angry. I mean, he got upset and I think he acknowledged that. And again, when we let our emotions drive our behavior, that's where we usually get in trouble. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Colton. Um, I, I hope we'll have uh, talks with you again in the future. It was, like I said, it was a lot of fun. Very informative. Very, very informative. Thank you, Colton. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. You guys do a great job. Well, thank you. Thanks. Hello there. This is your brother. And I have something to say concerning these people. If they do not listen to every minute of every episode of Infants on Thrones, they shall be totally missing out. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum money. They could buy anything in this world with money. On second thought, just give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. A small token for which they have pledged their eternal souls. Anyone for the closing prayer? <laughs> I guess my it would be my goal if if there was a if I had a goal towards this series episode or two or if John if Glenn's going to do another minisode after this who knows but I, I feel like my never goal know. yeah you never know <laughs> my goal would be to just hey everybody out there don't turn your critical thinking minds off always be skeptical including the people that you know you might be throwing emotional attachments to. Always keep, you know, one eye open by saying, you know, hey, you know, I felt like I was due by the church. You know, who's to say that something or someone, you know, might uh, 
might not be what they say they are. And I'm not saying, and that's the thing is like, I don't want to get into that extremes either. It's not, well, he's clearly a pedophile or a bad guy or a criminal or whatever, or, you know, but he's also not a saint either. It's, it's, it's like what we said at the very beginning. It's just, he's complicated. Like we all are, you know, we all have things that go on in our lives, but you know, if you're attaching your entire emotional weight and, and your wagon to someone, just be careful because you're going to be disappointed. A hundred percent. Yeah. Thanks well, for finishing my sandwich. Sandwiches. Sorry. Sandwiches. It's all right. No, I, I appreciated it. It was great. So we interpret, our brain interprets a psychological threat the same as a physical threat. Mm-hmm. And so when people are attacking our beliefs, you know, like Mormons or, 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 or our heroes, our brains and our bodies respond the same as if you came at me with fists. Right. And so that's part of the reaction in the, in the fandom is when you go after that sacred cow, for a lot of people, it feels like you're attacking them personally. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And And I'm, and that's how Mormon, like Mormons feel about us infants on thrones, the anti-Mormons that, make fun of their leaders with general conference parody episodes and things like that. Yeah. That very, well, I I've gone through multiple, I, I, I multiple occurrences where I put people as, you know, on these huge pedestals. And I know I've talked about this, I think. I know. You, I, I appreciate that you did it, but I told you, you didn't have to Tom. I know, but you were just so amazing. <laughs> No, the, so I had, I had a, and my wife tells a story to like friends of ours all the time. And it just, it's makes me sick, but I have to own it that I I was on the Lance Armstrong bandwagon. Oh, I remember. Yeah. And like, I, I still remember exactly where I was when I was watching the Oprah interview and like, it it felt like my crisis of faith all over again. it, It was so because I defended this guy to like everybody yeah, and, and it felt like he almost literally stabbed me in the back when he finally acknowledges, Oh yeah, sorry. I was cheating. Yeah. I did all, I did all those terrible things that I've been accused of. And so when I sat there and I was like, what? And Oh man, it sucks. And, and, and just to kind of piggyback what you're saying, Colton, that when people do put, people on these unfair pedestals and start to idealize them. And, and you see it nowadays that there's people that will defend John DeLynn regardless. It, it, I mean, even if, even if he had slept with eight different women, I still think there would be people like, Hey, but he's still doing good. You know, he saved right. my marriage. He saved my life. I was suicidal, whatever. Like, I mean, we've all had sexual urges. Who cares? You know, it's, it's that sort of defense mechanism that kicks in. Like, that's my sacred cow. Don't you dare attack it under any circumstances. He's my freaking mentor, pedestal, you know, pedestal guy. And that's yeah. my sacred cow. Don't touch it. And I don't want to assume your guys' politics, but it's the same thing with Don Trump, that he is a huge sacred cow to a lot of yeah. people. And, yeah. he, and he and knows it and he, you know, like he said i could go out in times square shoot somebody and i'd still have all my supporters yeah i mean i i literally had a woman on my couch in my office um who stated donald trump is my lord and savior i would oh. die for him oh my god needless to say we did not do a follow-up meeting <laughs> oh. but it was oh. the most bizarro session i've had in a long time but wow. she was oh, a man. true true believer in, in anyway. So it's, you know, it's, it's analogous to, 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 
uh, Lance Armstrong to John yeah. Lynn. And unfortunately, even, even if we, if I can't even say that if I all of a sudden had all these followers and people loved me, that I would behave accordingly all the time. Yeah. Of you know, the old adage of absolute power corrupts. And, and, it, and it's a really hard, difficult thing for people in positions of power not to utilize that for, for bad things. And so the part of me, back to John DeLynn, about what you guys do, just, you know, there's the part of me that's like, yeah, let's shed some light on this darkness here. Let's, let's stop pretending that he's this bumbly, happy, let's get ice cream guy. <laughs> he's, just, he's just as human as everybody else. And we yeah. need to be aware as a community, as people, that maybe this whole idea of hero worship, we should really challenge that ourselves. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't think that, that us putting, putting that kind of shedding light stuff out there is going to create more unhealthy attitudes or trauma for people? That's not, that's not a concern that we're exacerbating the problem or making it worse. I, I don't think you can take responsibilities for, for people's reactions to that. Oh, cool. That's, I never will. That, I never will again. I've, I've never had much problem with that in the past. Now I never will. That is awesome. Thank you. There's your immunity card. Woo-hoo. Get out of jail free. Yeah, sorry. Whoops. We've, and we've I, unleashed. I, right. <laughs> and have, have have you guys seen the uh, D- Dave Chappelle stand-up uh, stuff on Netflix where he talks about Bill Cosby? Let's not forget, let's not forget, I've never met Bill Cosby, so I'm not defending him. But let's just remember that he has a valuable legacy that I can't just throw away. I remember that he's the first black man to ever win an Emmy in television. I also remember that he's the first guy to make a cartoon with black characters where their lips and noses were drawn proportionally. I remember that he had a television show that got numbers equivalent to the Super Bowl every Thursday night. And I remember that he partnered up with a clinical psychologist to make sure that there was not one negative image of African Americans on his show. I'm telling you this, it's no small thing. I've had a television show. I wouldn't have done that shit. Gave tens of millions of dollars to African-American institutions of higher learning, and it's directly responsible for thousands of black kids going to college. Not just the ones he raped. (laughs) Here comes the kicker. You ready? Here's the fact that I heard but haven't confirmed. I heard that when Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said he had a dream, he was speaking into a PA system that Bill Cosby paid for. Do you understand what I'm saying? The point is this. He rapes, but he saves. And he saves more than he rapes, but he probably does rape. Thank you very much. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.